Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. This is Jason Kebler, and I've got with me here Emmanuel Myberg. Hey. And a very special guest, Whitney Phillips. Hi, Whitney. Hi, guys. Good morning. Whitney, you have a new job, so I hear. I do have a new job, yeah. I will be, as of fall, um, the assistant, uh, an assistant professor in communication, culture, and digital technologies at Syracuse University. Well, congratulations. Whitney is a longtime friend of Motherboard. Uh, she's the author of This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, which is sort of a, an anthropological history of 4chan and... Uh, trolling, I guess. Is that is that a good way to say it? That would be, yeah. I mean, it's these days, I now kind of talk about it in terms of it's a historical account, which that's not what I sort of set out to do, right? But enough time has passed and enough things have changed that kind of situating it historically that this was research conducted from 2008 to 2014 becomes important because of all the changes that have subsequently happened. But yeah, that's a very good framing of that Right. And then you've also wrote or co-wrote The Ambivalent Internet with Ryan Milner, uh, another friend of Motherboard, and uh, he's also been on the podcast, as has Whitney. And uh, we're talking to you today because you just published a report, PDF. I'd call it a like short book, but it's a PDF (laughs) ebook called The Oxygen of Amplification with uh, Data and Society in New York. Um, Can you just sort of frame what... uh, what the oxygen of amplification the report is like what what are we talking about today yeah so i mean it giving a little bit of history on how the report came about i think kind of will summarize and frame what it what it is doing or trying to do so i because of the work with trolling that i've done over the last 10 years now god help me um i've interacted with lots and lots of reporters uh over many many years 10 years in fact um and Around the sort of Trump turn in 2015, there was uh, an increasing uptick uh, about, of course, alt-right, I'm doing big scare quotes, and other kinds of sort of trollish shitposting that a lot of people wanted to talk about and contextualize within the context of um, 4chan and trolling and all of that stuff. And so I was talking to more reporters than I had been, even though I had already been talking to a lot of reporters. And then in um, during, after the Charlottesville um, rally in particular, I noticed that I was starting to hear a, a different kind of 
anxiety coming from the reporters I was speaking to. And again, this was consistent interaction I was having with people, usually a couple of times a week, sometimes just once a week, but talking to people pretty, pretty consistently, including you guys. And because I'm a trained um, folklorist and, and have training in uh, ethnography, I'm nosy. And so I would ask the porter, reporters I was talking to, how are you doing with all of this stuff? What do you think of this? How do you feel? And so I was getting these consistently um, worried responses about, you know, how do we responsibly report on bigoted content or manipulative content or hoaxes or shitposting or whatever. And so that became kind of an ongoing conversation. And so anecdotally, I was starting to see all of this evidence that there was a lot of concern about these issues. But anecdotes are not research. And so I decided to do research. And so the report, um, I ended up talking to some of the folks who I had worked with uh, over time. But I also reached out to a, a, a very diverse respondent pool to get their perspective on how it feels for them to report on polluted information and dis and misinformation and what kinds of best practices they think um, work or what uh, best practices should be implemented to minimize media manipulation and, and harm. Um, and so the report is drawing, in short, from 10 years of experience with this kind of behavior and these kinds of problems, but then also situating it particularly in our current moment of um, hell and <laughs> So it's it's seeking to just kind of provide a vocabulary and a framework for, for talking um, about amplification issues and the kinds of ethical issues that these uh, online behaviors uh, conjure. Right. So I want to, uh, I guess, sort of broadly speaking, we're talking about by writing about the alt-right, by writing about, uh, you know, the Pepe memes, by, uh, you know, giving Richard Spencer a platform or, or Milo Yiannopoulos a platform. Uh, you are sort of inherently making the problem worse. Um, I want to read a quote from your uh, report. Uh, the takeaway for establishment journalists is stark and starkly distressing. Just by showing up for work and doing their jobs as assigned journalists covering the alt the far right fringe, which subsumed everything from professional conspiracy theorists to pro-Trump social media shit posters to actual Nazis, played directly into these groups' public relations interests. Um, and that's something that I think we've thought a lot about uh, while we were covering, uh, you know, Donald Trump's meme army or the alt-right. Um, Emmanuel, can you talk a little bit about how we have generally approached this? Yeah, I think uh, you and I uh, talked about this a lot. And uh, I think you wrote most of those stories and I edited most of them. And... I think our approach was generally not to be amazed and shocked by what was happening, but explained how it happened. And I think that when we published a story that made these memes and the far right and these mysterious groups on 4chan and Discord, which is... Uh, chat app that I think most people know about now, but at the time was like this little known uh, chat app for gamers. Um, when we managed to write stories that made them less mysterious and made the whole process seem obvious and banal even, that is when I felt our stories were most successful and uh, 
did the most to inform our readers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for a while we weren't really covering it all that much just because we were worried about amplifying it. And I had talked to Whitney quite a lot about uh, the issue of amplifying hate. Um, we actually had her on a podcast uh, a couple years ago about the Leslie Jones harassment um, a few years back and, and how just kind of writing about that made the whole situation worse. Um, and I feel like that was mostly before uh, a lot of this alt-right stuff uh, had happened. So Whitney, you've been thinking about this for a long time. And I think a part of um, your first book is about how 4chan played the media and, you know, not just the liberal media, but Fox News and all sorts of people uh, to get publicity. And, and regardless of whether it's, you know, quote unquote, bad publicity, it, it served a means to their ends, right? It did, yeah. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, this report was kind of a full full circle of the work that I did um, for my first book. And the difference, though, is that, you know, the, the people who were participating on 4chan in the early days of subcultural trolling, um, which you can trace back to sort of 2003, but it really took off, started to take off in around 2007, 2008. And it was crystallized when basically Fox News, or the actual like news of Fox, not the cable news channel, um, but a Fox News affiliate uh, station, um, I think it was Fox 11, and John Beard, who was the newscaster I personally grew up with, they filed this report that was sort of drawing from some of the existing but nascent lore on 4chan. So 4chan had sort of a, it was created in 2003 and over the subsequent years had kind of sort of coalesced a little bit. There was some inside, there was inside jokes, there was lingo, there was Argot, um, basic community formation stuff, but it wasn't known outside of those channels. And it wasn't until this Fox News report that sort of had drawn from some of the inside jokes and then framed those inside jokes as being totally serious. And so a couple of those memes were um, the Internet hate machine, uh, the 4chan party van, which were just sort of these these jokes that participants used to kind of jokingly bolster their own nefariousness, right? They were like playing up how scary they were. And then the fact that these jokes then got reported as fact on a, you know, pretty high profile news outlet, that was really one of the first big wins of the subculture. And that was actually when, so an, they had been using the term they anonymous to sort of describe their behavior. And that was a function of when you posted something on 4chan and you didn't populate the name field, which was the standard practice, um, it would, it would say anonymous and then it would give your, it would give your statement. So people sort of collectively referred to themselves as, a, as anonymous and individual participants as anons, but that wasn't known outside of those circles. And, and so then this news report, they call themselves anonymous, you know, that really crystallized this identity and also associated it with a kind of dark, dangerous, you know, sort of pre, pre, pre shitposting. Um, and from there, the more news media reported on these behaviors and the group generally, the more jokes were kind of established about them. And it, and it became a, a very deliberate cat and mouse game between participants and often right-wing media. I mean, they really went after the Fox News cable channel very frequently. Bill O'Reilly was a common um, frequent target. 
And it was always this goading. How can we get journalists to report on us and tell and feed? How do we feed them lies that they then report as fact? And there was some awareness early on that many of the journalists doing these reports, they kind of knew it was bullshit, but it was such a sensationalist story. And, you know, people were just beginning to understand the contours of online spaces. And so it was hackers on steroids and it was a really good story. And that just created and crystallized this subculture that then grew into these ways that, that then to many was surprising in 2015, but actually wasn't because this is what they had been doing. These were the norms of the subculture. These were strategies and tactics that had been perfected literally over a decade. So the fact that we came to the place that we did with sort of pro-Trump shitposting, the groundwork had been laid forever. And so this report is kind of connecting the dots between that early subcultural behavior, which wasn't um, political in the recognizable ways that it became, but it, it was still problematic. That's a different story. Um, but it was connecting what happened then and what happened now and basically saying none of this is surprising. Yeah. And as someone who grew up on the internet, um, you know, I, I went to 4chan from time to time. I didn't really like participate there, but I certainly was part of like forum subcultures. And, uh, you know, I was a gamer in high school and I, I was very like I was following this stuff. And then so when I became a reporter, none of this was surprising to me. And I thought that that made me uh, you know, sort of better situated to report on it, especially I had read, you know, read some of your work, and I had read other academic work on this space. And I don't think, you know, motherboard necessarily covered everything perfectly. But I think we were better situated and covered a lot of sort of the alt right situation uh, better than most. Uh, that That's not to say that it was always helpful. I'm not really sure, um, you know, whether we were helping or hurting. However, um, you know, you did talk to me and Emmanuel for this report, and then I read the report, and uh, you know, you talk about this idea of troll trained and troll untrained journalists, which is a term I believe you made up for this this report, but <laughs> does uh, you know it does make sense? So um, it sounds like the troll trained reporters that you spoke to, and you talked to way more people than just me and Emmanuel, but the the troll trained reporters uh, had some advantages, but also some. Uh, short-sightedness or, or some weaknesses as well and then the the troll untrained reporters who were approaching this as though it was completely novel and they'd never heard of it before also had their own issues as well so could you speak a little bit to that yeah i mean one of the things that was both surprising to encounter and then once i thought about it not surprising at all was yeah somebody's exposure to trolling culture or meme culture or internet culture. And I'm scare quoting because all of those terms are really problematic. Um, but, you know, people who sort of think of themselves as identifying with a certain kind of internet culture, meme-based, you know, it's got kind of consistent sort of rhetorical markers and aesthetic markers that people who were um, exposed to that when they were younger were in, on one hand, a pretty strong position to respond to some of the sort of pro-Trump um, shitpost rumblings that we first started seeing in 2015 because they'd seen it before and so they could kind of situate it within a broader context of trollish behavior and you know that was helpful because those early shitposting behaviors did there was a direct line between trolling culture slash meme slash internet culture so it was helpful to be able to contextualize it the problem is that 
you know, as fun and funny as as internet culture slash troll culture and meme culture can be, it often contains um, a great deal of symbolic violence that that within subcultural trolling spaces, there is a normalization of kind of outrageous. I mean, this is putting it very lightly, but outrageous um, speech patterns. Right. I mean, so utilizing the most offensive language possible quote, for the lulls is something that was just part and parcel of this particular subculture. And in some ways, you know, one of the goals, certainly in the more hardcore trolling circles, was trolls, trolling, trolls, trolling, trolls, was to see how offensive you could be if you could troll a fellow troll. That was sort of the greatest win of all. And so there was always sort of transgressive one-upsmanship within this subculture that became very um, influential in the memes that then sort of propagated throughout other online spaces. And so being able to recognize that rhetoric was good, but the rhetoric often, you know, was dehumanizing and deliberately dehumanizing. It wasn't like these were people talking about the hardcore trolls here. It wasn't that they didn't know that the words they were using were offensive and dehumanizing and terrible they used those words because they were there was a there was a, there was an awareness of the damage that language and behavior could enact and and that's why they did it because they wanted to sort of facilitate a reaction so for people more on the periphery of that who maybe weren't hardcore trolls themselves there still was this normalization of that kind of um, linguistic patterning and so then when you started seeing you know, kind of an exaggerated version of that in 2015 with this pro-Trump shitposting. Yeah, it was maybe a little more extreme than what many of, you know, these people were used to. But it also fell within the it fell within a broad normative category that a lot of people maybe mistook as being similar to what they had seen before because they had encountered this. They had been in, in enmeshed in this since they were teenagers. So even people who weren't trolls themselves and who kind of had a problem with the most extreme trolling rhetoric, they were maybe more comfortable with this kind of dehumanizing language. Um, and so then they didn't respond to it as being um, real, that it, yeah. that it was really easy to couch it as just trolling. And so that created this big problem for a lot of younger reporters who just were slower to recognize that the Nazi stuff they were seeing was mm, coming from a different sort of place than what they were assuming. And that was a huge liability for for many young reporters that maybe they didn't quite realize until after Charlottesville when they when they kind of came to the con- realization that oh shit, right? Like this is this was not just trolling. I need to rethink that framing. Yeah, I would say I'm going to struggle to articulate this, but I was reading um earlier coverage of 4chan and anonymous uh from like 2010 2011 and the the language that they use uh the the racism was always there but it was um disconnected from any real political movement so it was just like the the language of racism and the aesthetics of 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 Nazis, but it it didn't it never the rubber never met the road, so it was all for the lulls, like you say. And then something happened in 2015 where those aesthetics 
actually fuse with a real political movement. And I think that is the part that was hard for people to catch on to because we were so used to hearing about these groups and seeing these memes as disconnected from any political reality. And then Trump came along and 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 they actually had real impact and real meaning and real world consequences. And I, I think that that was so um, hard to believe that it, 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 it that this was actually happening um, and, and took people a while to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was interesting speaking to some of these younger reporters because there was a, a great deal of surprise that with hindsight, um, a lot of people were shocked that they didn't recognize like how do you how do you miss that how do you not notice when suddenly white supremacy is nor how how do you not how do you not recognize that when it when it creeps up on you but that's the insidiousness and so it's looking back on early 4chan you know uh, a lot of the raids and a lot of the behaviors that um, participants engaged in at the time you know, it was motivated by lulls and, and you could and I did in my book, you know, critique it on grounds of this is these are mostly white middle class boys or men, mostly, although, of course, there were some women who participated, but it was a highly male gendered um, kind of circumstance and situation that gen- male gendered communication was valued. So you devalued and denigrated anything that that had any sort of emotional value. And instead, you know, you focused on cool, hard logic. Right. And anybody who was not abiding by those gendered norms, you would then attack whether or not the person attacking was actually, you know, male or female. It didn't matter. It was that there was a normalized sort of gendered sense that male communication was superior and female communication, which culturally in the West, at least, is coded as as being emotional and sort of sensitive that was that was the object of attack so um there's a lot that you could criticize about those early spaces in terms of this is just privilege run amok people who did not have to think about how their language and behavior connected to political realities because it certainly isn't the case that like racism and sexism weren't issues at the time right they totally were it's just that Participants never had to think about or deal with the consequences of the things they said online. It was it was perfectly easy and acceptable within the context of the subculture to totally demarcate your actual political beliefs from the shit you said on the Internet. And, you know, that um, so that in itself is something to really critique. But, yeah, the politics, the ideology was not. It, it was almost normalized to really issue um, a politics, a clear politics, because if you really believed in something, that was female-gendered communication. You cared, and that was liable to get you trolled. So it, it was it was politicized without question, but it wasn't political um, in a way that you could recognize as being kind of traditionally political. And then, of course, that shifted um, around 2000 and started to with Gamergate. I mean, Gamergate was really a catalyzing moment where some of the um, in the report, I, I quote Sam Biddle, um, former Gawker reporter, as describing it um, at the time as the underlying fascistic current that maybe there wasn't a clear and obvious politics of 4chan in particular, 
but the you know the jokes often hinged on racist expression or violently misogynist expression so there was this kind of undercurrent that was there to be cultivated and so it kind of especially as gamergate um sort of emerged and attracted more people who were sort of self-selecting as being drawn to that underlying quote fascistic undercurrent as an actual politics as opposed to just being sort of lulzy there was this shift over time of the kind of apolitical and i say that with caveats and carefully because it wasn't apolitical nothing is but it wasn't people claiming a politics um there was sort of the shift from that being the norm to slowly more and more people with with a clear unapologetic ideology they entered that space but because the space itself didn't change and the um communication style didn't change and the output didn't really change it's kind of not surprising that a lot of not just reporters but academics and and just cultural critics generally didn't see that shift happen it happened in real time and it happened sort of publicly kind of hiding in plain sight and so then suddenly you've got kind of a full-fledged metastasized political term that took a lot of people by surprise especially those who had kind of gotten used to the um, offensive elements that were already there so it's a very fascinating thing talking to these younger reporters kind of as they recognized with hindsight what they had missed and why yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about because um, we have talked quite a bit about what uh, younger reporters missed. And for the most part, just to generalize, I would say, you know, a lot of younger reporters probably work for websites like Motherboard or The Verge or Gizmodo or, uh, you know, the various Gawker sites. Um, and, you know, some of them obviously work for sort of legacy media, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. But, uh, you know, at some point, the big guys, you know, the Time Magazine, New York Times, uh, Washington Post did pick up on this. And eventually Hillary Hillary Clinton even, you know, had a Pepe explainer, which is, you know, mentioned in your report as well. Um, how What was the difference in your mind uh, between, I guess, like online native uh, publications that sort of have always covered internet culture writing about this versus some of the massive, you know, New York Times and Time magazines of the world writing about this? Like, was the tone different? Was the impact different? Um, was the conversation that you had with those people different in making those this report? Yeah, I mean, so in, in the report itself, the way that I frame this um, is that so younger reporters, especially those who are sort of embedded in sort of tech spaces and internet culture spaces, the, the way that you would characterize the myopia um, is that these reporters often recognized the clothes the wolf was wearing, and so they didn't recognize the wolf. And obviously that poses some problems, because when you're talking about actual white supremacy and actual gendered violence and all of that stuff. I mean, there are real world consequences to all of this. And so not recognizing that this was a real thing to be really worried about, that's a problem. On the other hand, when you're talking about reporters who didn't have any familiarity with these spaces, they didn't, they didn't have the um, kind of training and literacy to recognize when trolling rhetoric was happening. And so there was this great sort of impulse to take all of it totally seriously. And that's not to undermine the seriousness of the underlying ideology, right? That 
the white supremacists and neo-Nazis who populate sites like the Daily Stormer, they're not kidding. They're, they're also using um, ironic uh, aesthetic markers. And that's part of their radicalization strategy that, you know, if they pretend that it's that they're just joking, it's it's easier for those ideas to spread. So they're they're sincerely held ideologies. They're communicated through trolling rhetoric and trolling norms. So reporters who didn't have any um, sense of what those norms were, they couldn't situate it. They couldn't say, yes, this is serious, and this is also media manipulation. They're trying to trick us. And so the issue with sort of older reporters, or and it's, it wasn't always older reporters, but reporters who didn't have that kind of uh, native understanding of Internet culture, they tended to be older, but it's not necessarily an age thing. It's an exposure thing. It's just that exposure tends to, to run down demo, age demographics. Um, so their, their trouble was that they recognized the wolf and they were correct to recognize the wolf, but they didn't, they didn't, they couldn't see the troll. And so then their reporting really put a lot of stock and gave a lot of credence to the bullshit that a lot of these um, white supremacists were saying that they meant their, their meaning was hateful. Their delivery was trollish and by not calling attention to that interplay and that that tension what happened is that these shit posters were handed a microphone um and then taken totally seriously taken at their word quoted in full you know and and it ended up it was sort of the limitations of one group of the younger journalists ended up um creating a perfect storm with the limitations of older, more traditional reporters, because the younger reporters got there first. They saw it first. They were there first. They were, they were sort of on the ground, um, online. So they were making, they were reporting these things and their own reporting, because they were often, many of these reporters were sort of steeped in irony themselves and trollish tactics themselves. So much of this early coverage by these younger reporters was kind of ha-ha, look at these swastikas. But then the older reporters saw that reporting, didn't know what to do with that um, ambivalence, and so then it all became um, true and uncontested and unexamined, and it was just quoted in full. And so then you had um, this perfect storm where more reporting begot more reporting begot more reporting, and, and that's really what provided these um, white supremacists the kind of platform that they ultimately enjoyed, um, much to their delight and shock. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of this probably sounds abstract if you weren't paying super close attention to all of this, which uh, I was, um, and I'm sure that Emmanuel and Whitney were as well. But uh, one example, and I, I really don't like uh, bringing up specific examples, but I think this is one that really stuck out to me, uh, was that uh, Time Magazine ran a cover story about trolling, and the main, uh, you know, the main character of that uh, of that profile was Milo Yiannopoulos, and uh, Weave was quoted sort of at length in that story as well, and the reporter is like, oh, haha, like Weave is trolling me, um, and you know, Weave was sending. Uh, sort of notorious white supremacist and uh, and Nazi 
uh, Weave was like sending this guy, this Jewish reporter, uh, you know, hateful comments, and he was just putting them sort of at length in Time magazine. And I believe that story had, you know, like he spent time with Milo Yiannopoulos. He, uh, you know, described him as like, uh, you know, this posh British guy and sort of not your average uh you know, alt-right person, Milo is gay. That was sort of given a lot of space in that story as well. So, you know, this guy can't cl- clearly can't be that bad or can't be that threatening. Um, I remember after that story was published, you know, that reporter went on Milo Yiannopoulos's podcast and they were joking around for, you know, an hour or whatever. So uh, when I saw like reporting like that, it's kind of like this is a guy who parachuted in talked to you know two trolls did did talk to i think he talked to you whitney for for this story but also talked to maybe a couple other people but for the most part did a character profile of these people and put it on the cover of you know a national magazine and that gives them in my opinion gives them a lot more power and credence than they're worth and i think that it wasn't uh, there was enough good there or like coded language that was hey this is uh, not that threatening um, that it did not sort of it, it brought their ideas to a lot more people and didn't challenge them and I, I don't know if that's a good way of, of explaining that particular story but that's sort of how I saw it oh I mean in that so in the report I'm I'm pretty careful not to um, point to specific examples or specific reporters as like having done bad work and part of the reason I didn't do that is that you know, for people who are who are reporters, they obviously know this, and and people who work with reporters know this too. But the average reader might not know how many hands an article actually passes through, and it depends on the outlet, right? I mean, certain outlets like the New York Times. I wrote um, a short thing for them once, and you know, like twenty five people end up editing the thing, and and there's so many layers of uh, engagement when a person writes a story. You may have a byline, but that's reflective of a lot of unseen labor. And and smaller publications, maybe not so much. Smaller publications, you may only have one editor. And in some cases, you may not have an editor at all. But there's a range. And, you know, my concern was, I don't actually know who I would be critiquing. Because especially if you're talking about younger reporters or freelance reporters, they may have their own kind of ethical um, stance that they, they want to take and would like to take, but they can't because they don't want to be fired. And so they make decisions that that they personally disagree with or think is problematic, but they've got to write the story and they've got to, and then someone slaps a headline on it that is problematic to them, but what are they going to do? Because they need to feed themselves. So I was worried about calling out specific instances because again, I couldn't be sure who, if that critique was accurate. Um, But that particular Time Magazine article was one of only two exceptions that I made to that rule because it was so egregious. And yes, I was interviewed for that um, report and also gave all of these warnings. Um, And, you know, the thing about that particular article that was concerning to me is so the impulse that a lot of reporters who were not familiar with this space, it's it's there's so much happening. There's so much history. There's so much tradition. It's sort of dizzying and dazzling to a lot of people who have never seen it before. And so a lot of people who aren't familiar with those spaces, and I'm not speaking specifically to this Time Magazine reporter, but generally in my experience, I have found that a lot of people who aren't familiar with online community formation broadly, they're fascinated by how 
involved it is and the inside jokes. And there's a lot, it's interesting. And I, I did scare quotes um, just in the sense that people are curious about it. And so you expose someone to such a wild space and there's often a kind of, and again, this is generally my experience over the last 10 years, there's often a kind of dark attraction to it, you know, and this is particularly true for the white male reporters that I have worked with, that there's this sense that like, wow, this is so interesting. And so then there's almost, it, it kind of, um, dulls somebody's, uh, critical faculties that you kind of want to be, in some ways you kind of want to be cool by getting it right. And part of getting it is like you joke with the trolls or you, uh, frame their behaviors. You use the language that the trolls use. You, um, buy into their framings. You parse the world up in the categories that they have chosen and given to you. And in so doing, you validate that worldview and sort of normalize that as all being kind of part of a joke and not super dangerous. And that Time Magazine article, yeah, it's critical, but it's also critical in a way that it frames Andrew Arnheimer, um, who goes by the name Weave, but I prefer to call him by his full name, um, that it, 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 it describes him in exactly the way that he would describe himself, which is the perhaps the biggest troll in history. Like, what, the, what does that mean? perhaps the biggest troll in history. He's an avowed neo-Nazi and serial online abuser. But in this article, so yeah, okay, he's doing this anti-Semitic stuff. But in the article, this reporter refers to his anti-Semitism and his violent attacks against Jews as, quote, good quotes in the article, that it is this bald-faced sense that, like, this is going to be good for clicks. This guy is saying terrible things, but they're kind of funny. And this reporter also says... And then at a certain point, I started trolling him back. Like, he's now part of the game. He's playing along. Um, and you saw that then with the subsequent uh, Yiannopoulos engagement, too. And so that reporting, it's critical. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't um, but it, it stands so far outside of the community that it doesn't know when it's getting played. And so many reporters got played um, by kind of buying into the troll's line that, it was all just harmless and it's all just funny. And do you want to seem like an oversensitive baby? Right. But there, so there was a lot of sort of psychological dynamics that were going into this, this reporting that caused things to be so problematic. So, and then it was this spectrum, right? That you had people, reporters who were like buying into the trolls version of the world and thinking it was kind of funny and maybe they didn't want to admit this outright, but thought it was kind of cool that like so edgy. Right. But then you also had reporting that took, sort of bald-faced bullshit statements that were cynically made and that were, you know, kind of presented with a wink. And then the reporters would would reproduce that totally deadpan, totally seriously. And in both cases, the platform for these for these views and the violence that they enact were um, given more credence and they just kept getting handed more and more microphones. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. 
Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about I guess the, what the role of the media should be or is traditionally just because um you know, I have my own thoughts about how uh how and if uh, these groups should be reported on. And, you know, at Motherboard, we've sort of taken the stance that this is bad. Um, but a lot of newspapers and a lot of journalists try to, uh, quote unquote, remain objective and try to just report what is happening um, and, you know, give that information to the readers and, and then like sort of let them decide. And I think that your report, while it's a fantastic resource and it's very... Uh, thorough and it raises a lot of really important issues i think that there's probably a strain of journalists sort of like an old school journalist who would read this report and ask you know well we're not ideological we don't believe that uh you know we should decide whether this stuff is worth reporting or 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 you know it's not our job to sort of knock this down it's our job to uh just report that it's happening and it's the responsibility of readers to make a decision about uh you know whether they should give any credence to this or not um i guess what do you think of of that framing and is that something that you heard from any anyone that you talked to yeah i mean that that's uh one of the critiques that that you could that you could make i mean i think the response to this idea that what we need to do as reporters is report what happened and then just sort of back off and let people sort of make sense of it as, as they, um, as they choose or as they're able to, you know, the problem is that if the, and often this takes the, the, um, it takes the form of kind of both sides reporting. So we're going to report somebody who says that, uh, we're going to report a white supremacist and then, you know, we're going to like critique that a little bit. Um, or we're going to talk to someone who maybe thinks that white supremacists are are n- are not cool, right? So you're kind of looking at both sides of the argument, and then again, you throw your hands up and you walk away. The problem is that both sides' framings are often um, based on false equivalencies. So you're not actually giving your reader both sides of the story. You are presenting one thing that's true and one thing that's false. But by placing the true thing alongside the false thing, it makes it seem like the false thing is plausible when it isn't. So even if your goal is to not editorialize, you are editorializing by doing that. You are saying that X position is as valuable as Y position. And in some cases, maybe it is. I mean, you can have and we should have in a, in a thriving functional democracy people who reasonably disagree on the issues. Disagreement and argumentation is not a bad thing at all. That's what democracy is, and we need that to happen. But that presumes, for that to work, for that to function, you need to have both claims, both perspectives be equally reasonable. And the problem when you're reporting on something like white supremacy um, or uh, any kind of sort of identity-based violence in particular is that the idea that that's okay and normal and fine is just simply not truth, right? That those perspectives, those ideologies are so damaging and so dangerous that just by kind of handing someone a microphone as if they're any person and it's totally fine and it's equivalent to talking to, you know, someone who's a a social justice um, advocate saying that that position that, 
you know, people should be treated with respect and, and not be killed because of the color of their skin to suggest that that's, that that is an equivalent position to someone saying, you know what, fuck people of color, right? Like that is just not true and it's not okay. So in certain circumstances and in certain conversations, both sides of them is fine and is good. But when you're talking about um, violence, when you're talking about these kinds of stories and ideologies that have such a profound real world impact um, that affect people's bodies and ability to move around their uh, world safely, then you have a different calculus and it becomes, um, I think, disingenuous to say, you know what, it's not our job to say whether or not Nazis are not okay. Like, like that just seems to me to, to really be setting um, people up for danger. And so, yeah, I, I understand the critique and I, I get that balance is important, but the question really is to whom are you being fair? You know, are you being fair to bodies under siege or are you being fair to people who believe that they get to put those bodies under siege and that no one should be able to tell them otherwise? Yeah. Uh, I have a question for, for the room, for the panel. <laughs> um, so this whole uh, issue of how to cover trolls and the far right uh i think took us by surprise and that's why uh your report here is so useful i am wondering if you two think there is something going on right now uh in the way the media is covering things that we're going to look back on a year from now two years from now and uh, kick ourselves for why it was done, done the wrong way or things that we missed or things that we didn't cover or, or something like that. Okay, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that obviously there are certainly topics that the media isn't covering that well right now and that we'll look back on in a few years and uh, we'll see that we're not covering it well. I think that it's going to be, it's really hard to, to say when you're in that moment. Um, but if I had to, to bring up a couple now, I mean, I think that the New York Times is still sort of driving this national conversation with its opinion section. And I think that uh, it has sort of time and time again over the last couple uh, months given a lot of credence to a lot of very bad ideas that then became subjects of, of national conversation. So this idea of uh, redistributing sex, like as though it were money or something like this, like that's pretty like obviously a bad conversation to have right now, I think. And I also think this intellectual dark web conversation is not a, a great one. Um, and these stories, when they come out, you know, they're slammed and, and everyone says that they're shitty and they are shitty. But then we spend the next month talking about them. And I wonder, uh, you know, by talking about this idea that, you know, incels should be given even the tag incel or should be given uh, some sort of seat at the table in terms of uh, should, you know, we make sex robots and sex workers uh, have sex with people who hate women or, or are angry at women for not having sex with them is not a good conversation to have. I also think that, you know, this idea that there are academics out there who have been silenced for their views uh, is a pretty ridiculous one uh, when the people f are featured in a sort of glowing 
profile with, you know, giant photos in the most important media outlet in the possibly in the world, uh, you know, these photos of them uh, as though they're Poison Ivy in the comic book series or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. Are they one with the trees or something? It's very weird. Um, but like these people uh, like Sam Harris and and Joe Rogan and, um, you know, I, I think that all of them have ideas that are, you know, worth discussing and that are discussed ad nauseum. You know, it's not like we're not having these conversations that they're they're asking us to have. Um, and these people have audiences of millions and they also are quoted in the media all the time. So I don't really understand their sort of argument there. And I think that the coverage surrounding this is not has not been the best. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, you know, so one of the to the question of are we going to look back and be horrified by anything? You know, it, that's a hard question to answer because often that requires a catalyzing event. I mean, it was the Charlottesville rally that really got in my experience talking to reporters. That's really what got people sort of looking back and having the oh god, what have we done moment. You know, that in the report I talk about um a freelancer who had been up until that point sort of writing about swastikas with some levity. I mean, it was just sort of funny to her. And it never, she had heard of the um, website, The Daily Stormer, the sort of white supremacist neo-Nazi space, but she had never gone there because in her mind, there wasn't um, a connection between all the swastikas she was seeing in these various gaming environments and then, you know, actual white supremacy. And it wasn't until Charlottesville when she realized like, oh, maybe I should look at The Daily Stormer. And she realized oh no, I mean, these. there was a total through line that she just didn't notice because she wasn't looking in those spaces and thought that there was such a disconnect. And that was something that, that came up very often for me in the, in the folks that I was talking to, that Charlottesville made, really threw them back on their heels and made them kind of retrospectively consider the choices that they had made. And so the question now is, well, what is what catalyzing event is going to get people to sort of think more carefully about how they framed particular conversations. It's sort of interesting because the Toronto van attack um, a few weeks ago, it sort of had an um, an opposite effect maybe that, you know, so you had this young man who purportedly, you know, posted something about um, incels on his Facebook page. Um, and, uh, you know, he talked about the incel movement or being a member of that. And, and so suddenly you had all of these reporters, that was a catalyzing moment for them to, you know, rush out and try to talk to as many incels as they could or to make sense of it or to try to, you know, explain why so many men are, you know, going through this this crisis of... of um, yeah, and I, I think that that's sort of an offshoot or a relic of, you know, a time long past, which is immediately after the 2016 election when there was uh, this sort of reckoning like, oh, what didn't we see? Why didn't we take the uh, concerns of the economically anxious seriously why didn't uh you know why didn't we write about sort of uh rural uh white americans and and their uh their concerns and their struggles and that sort of thing and i i feel like that's sort of what happened with the incel thing as well it's like oh no like something terrible happened and it must be you know our fault for not uh giving the understanding them yeah right exactly and um i think that there's a tendency in media, and I, I'd love to hear what both of you guys think, but I think there's a tendency in media to think that, uh, you know, journalism was sort of set up to be a check on power and to be 
uh, this watchdog and to sort of make sure democracy functions properly. And I think that we're starting to see the limits of journalism. Um, you know, I, I'm a journalist now, but, I, I, you know, historically, you sort of look at things like Watergate and you look at things where journalists brought down like big companies. And that still happens all the time. I, I think that journalists have been a good check on power in certain cases. But there have been instances in which journalists are sort of powerless to stop something from happening, um, even when they're sort of given unfettered. Uh, like, like I wouldn't say that journalists right now who are covering the Trump campaign have been impeded in any, in any real way, despite the administration trying to stop them. And yet, you know, journalists have uncovered dozens of crimes from from that family and, and, you know, Trump associates, and yet it still chugs along. And I think, you know, journalists want to believe that they can stop this, but uh, they, it seems as though maybe they can't. And uh, another example of that, uh, when you asked Emmanuel, like, what will we look back on and say, hey, we didn't report that properly? Um, I think right now I'm spending a lot of time looking back at how Facebook and Google and Apple were covered uh, five, six, seven years ago. And it's sort of like glowing, 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 glowing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, privacy concerns. Oh, you know, uh, monopoly concerns. Oh, you know, regulation, regulatory. We should regulate them, that sort of thing. And I think that uh, the tech media in general sort of allowed Silicon Valley like this these shiny new things to uh, sort of run ramshod over, uh, you know, legislation and run, you know, there, there was no check on that. Uh, there was no check on Facebook. There was no check on Google. There was no check on Apple. There was certainly no check on Amazon, which has used, you know, tons and tons of taxpayer funds um, throughout the, the last few years. And there's been very little check on Uber, which has ignored regulation sort of all over the country and all over the world. And I think now those companies are so powerful that anyone who's sort of uh, ringing the alarm now is sort of doing it after the barn door is already open. And I think that we will look back on sort of the early 2010s and late 2000s and say, like, tech reporters did a very bad job at warning about, you know, sort of what is to come from some of these big companies. Well, and that, I mean, that speaks to the sort of broader issue and that connects to this, you know, intellectual dark web meme and the incel meme and all of this is, you know, journalists are um, vulnerable to propaganda, you know, and propaganda can take a lot of different forms. It can take sort of economic business forms, right? The sort of idea that, Facebook was selling a line about what it did and why it was good. And there was a lot of credence given to that. And similarly, you know, you have these sort of far right um, actors kind of claiming that they're being um, that they're being misrepresented uh, and that they're not being treated fairly and that they're being kicked out of the academy and that all these terrible things, their, their speech is being uh, is under threat and they're not able to speak as they are quoted in The New York Times. You know, and, and people sort of buying into that and saying, oh, my God, I'm so worried about being accused of, of being anti-conservative that we better we better talk about the intellectual dark web, because if we don't, it's going to look like we are biased. So we need to create we need to correct. And so, you know, but that's a trick. It's just a trick to get um, certain attitudes, values, ideologies normalized um, and to do it under the guise of, again, the sort of both sides of them that 
so many journalists are, are so worried about being accused of bias and not being seen as objective, although they never are to begin with, that then they're willing to sort of give credence to things that um, are absurd or are harmful or are that don't make any sense at all. And so, you know, I think that uh, there is a lot of operational propaganda right now, um, a lot of media manipulation happening. And I think that, you know, there will probably be a reckoning in a, in a year or two of like, wow, we really got tricked into talking about a lot of weird shit. Yeah, I think um, to Jason's question, I mean, I think as, as jur- a journalist's job is to provide people with information that can make them better people, more informed citizens, and so on. And I don't feel like I'm missing um, facts, you know what I mean? I think I have more facts than I can handle. I think overall... <laughs> uh, journalism is doing a great job of telling me what the government is doing wrong, what uh, corporations are doing wrong. I have all this information. I think what I feel is lacking is we're missing some sort of rhetorical leadership. I mean, you have somebody like Jordan Peterson who takes up so much oxygen in, in, in the conversation globally, not even nationally, just like around the world. It's Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson and his ideas and his thoughts. And I mean, yeah, maybe he's getting too much coverage, but I think part of the reason it seems so skewed is that there isn't really like a counter figure. You know what I mean? So Jordan Peterson can go up there and say how, (laughs) I don't know, like postmodernism is stupid. You know what I mean? It's just like the entire uh, school of postmodernism is just like ridiculous, and 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 people can uh, cover that and be critical of that, but like, who would the New York Times opinion section cover as a counter to Jordan Peterson? I don't know who that person is, you know. Um, so like, we're, we're kind of like, there's no one to coalesce uh, around. Uh, yeah, I think that's like a big missing thing for me. And that's such a good point, too, is that when people talk about both sides-isms and the importance of giving both sides, people talk about the importance of doing that, but often what ends up happening is that just one side gets presented. So you have an article where you're talking to Jordan Peterson and hearing him explain, you know, enforced monogamy and whatever, but there's not really a corrective. Someone saying, like, wait, excuse me, wait, what? Like, what? You know, and so it's it's both sides in the sense that you're presenting maybe the sort of broader sense that there's this there's this assumption and maybe it's a true assumption that establishment media kind of leans center left um, and that in individual stories, then we need to give those to sort of right right wing views as a corrective to the overall liberalism. But if you're only giving right wing views in a singular um, article, then it isn't both sides. It's one side. It's just the one. And so it's kind of a misnomer to begin with. And I, again, I understand the goal and it's a, and it's a worthy goal in many cases, but it doesn't, in, in theory, it works better than it does in practice. Right. Yeah. And when, when well, you go, uh, just real quick, uh, when you have 500 articles about Jordan Peterson and there is a counter quote in each of those articles <laughs> saying maybe this is bad, those quotes come from probably 400 people. Uh, and so as a reader, it's like, oh, 500 articles about Jordan Peterson, probably not reading all of them. But the person who's speaking against him is probably like a, uh, you know, an, an academic or just a person uh, who is not nearly as high profile as him. And meanwhile, you know, they're not getting a, a covered. They're not giving 
that academic who is countering him is not getting the same type of coverage that he's getting. And so taking an aggregate, it's like, you know, all of these articles about this one guy and then the voice against him is sort of this scattered, uh, you know, scattered voice of academia, I guess. Right. Yeah. Perfunctory counter argument. And then also you aren't getting a sense of, OK, so Jordan Peterson might be able to make his arguments about enforced monogamy and, you know, gender role, traditional gender roles. He might be able to make that sound sort of erudite and um, perhaps even reasonable to some ears. Um but it doesn't take into account what the embodied repercussions for women are. What does, what does that world look like if these ideas that might sound not so terrible on paper, right? He's not advocating for violence against women, not directly. But how does that impact the lived experiences of women in this country and, and, and globally, too? You know, so it's it's really narrow the perspectives are really narrow and it's not contextualizing um you know what what the lived impact of these kinds of ideologies even if they don't seem so extreme um it still impacts how people live and what expectations about gender and about sex are and so those that tends to be missing in 800 word articles because that's much bigger than just kind of these sensationalist or maybe not even sensationalist, but just you go to Jordan Peterson, you ask him for a couple of quotes, he gives them to you, you rattle off maybe one person who says, uh, maybe not, and then that's the end of it. And it's not, you're not thinking about the sort of broader sort of uh, milieu of, of, of gender and sex and consent and power and all of these things that actually are what makes his perspective so problematic. Yeah, it also shifts the conversation entirely. Like, I feel like for years now, the conversation is just is purely defense, right? You're you're playing defense against these ideas. It, we never get around to like let let's explore the idea of you know equality and diversity on its own merit. It's always playing defense against Jordan Peterson. Yeah, one one thing I want to briefly mention here is I think we're starting to see. Um, another sort of media possible possibly a media crisis i don't i don't really know what to call it but um you know elon musk yesterday went on a uh, quite a long rant about how he's been covered um by the the media in recent uh months he's been sort of tweeting quite a lot about tesla and and the coverage of tesla um he's gone after you know sensationalist coverage why are people writing about when the robot car crashes, but they're not writing about when the human person crashes, which I could talk about for hours about why. <laughs> um, but something that I, I think we're seeing here, and I, it maybe the comparison is too easy. Um, you know, you have a billionaire attacking, singling out and attacking journalists on Twitter to his massive fan base. But we're seeing what happens when someone who is probably liked quite a bit more than Trump uh, employs Trump-like tactics, um, and I'm interested to see what happens here. It's it's kind of scary um, because I think that while Tesla and SpaceX and Elon Musk in general have done a lot of really interesting things, and I I do think that uh, you know Tesla and SpaceX in particular are good for the world. Um, I, I don't think that they should be immune from criticism and he seems to think that they should be immune from criticism because a lot of the uh you know stories that he's taking issue with are sort of uh ap wire stories about you know 400 word stories about a car crash 
Um, and he's sort of, A, he's lying about them because in one particular tweet he said, you know, this is front page news when actually it was an Associated Press brief that was picked up by the Washington Post and thrown on their website somewhere. Um, and B, he is extremely well liked. Um, he has millions and millions of, of fans and people who idolize him. And he is being covered in a way that Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and Facebook and Google were not covered for a really long time. And so what we're seeing now is I think people have learned from the fact that, hey, journalists do need to be a check on big tech companies. Uh, But now that they're being a check on big tech companies, they're going up against Elon Musk and uh, he's able to point to the fact that people don't trust journalists anymore because they've screwed up all these other things in previous years so they're kind of fighting back against uh both someone who's very well liked as well as the history of sort of screwing up uh like he can point to to the coverage and say why weren't why weren't you like this to other tech companies and he'd be right about that because in general journalists were very uh nice and kind to these silicon valley giants prior to to tesla and spacex yeah, I mean that. So, so this particular case is interesting because it speaks to um, uh, media landscape in which we've kind of grown accustomed to, or there's been a normalization um, of the intolerance for criticism, and that intolerance for criticism manifests often, whether it's said explicitly or just implicitly, that that's fake news. That what Trump has done in a lot of ways is kind of normalized that idea that. One way that you can undermine or discredit um, negative coverage is to then go after the journalist. And yeah, there's a lot. And we've been doing this for the last hour. There are lots of critiques that you can make of journalism, but it's a really easy and in terms of PR, a very effective move to then pivot away from the content of what is being under what's under discussion and then basically just shooting the messenger and saying, yeah, but you can't be trusted because you're a journalist. And it reminds me of the uh, astonishing, but but not surprising, but still astonishing somehow because it's 2018. Um, the, the interview or the statement that Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes gave the other day um, where she said that after Trump had won the nomination, she was talking to him, um, and this was there was a filmed interview taking place, but this was off camera. There weren't any cameras around, and she just asked him, you know, why are why do you go after the press in the way that you do? And he said straight up, because I want to discredit and demean you, so that when you write something negative about me, I um, no one will believe you. And so it that has I think maybe not trickled down directly. I'm not saying that Elon Musk like learned. Trump taught him everything he knew, but we do occupy this very strange territory where fake news and scare quotes or, you know, going after journalism is just a really convenient way of not having to engage in complicated conversations. That That's just the immediate out. Okay, well, I don't want to talk about this. That's not fair. I don't like it. Therefore, the messenger, um, you shouldn't trust them just by definition of the fact that they are reporting the news to you. Yeah, and an argument that I've seen, you know, in Elon Musk's mentions and in the Reddit comments, because I'm a psycho who reads way too deeply into this, is that, uh, (laughs) you know, I'll just get my news on YouTube, and this is why I went to YouTube, and, you know, I trust this person, this YouTuber, or that YouTuber, or what have you, and that is a horrifying thing to read as a journalist, because 
you know, I've talked to YouTubers and they say, A, they know nothing about, uh, you know, standard sort of journalistic practice, which, you know, you can talk about whether that's important or not. But uh, there are many, many YouTubers out there who I think are super valuable, super entertaining. They're certainly more entertaining than I am. Um, but and, and they give good information to their uh, to their viewers. You know, if what you want is a review of of, you know, the Apple HomePod or if what you want is an entertaining look at, uh, you know, the fact that Apple won't repair something or. Uh, if you want a very long rant about something. But what these YouTubers aren't doing and what they'll never do because they're not journalists, they're not trained, they're not interested in doing it because it's adversarial, it's unpleasant, and it's not fun to do, is they're not reading through, you know, hundreds of pages of court documents. They're not filing Freedom of Information Act requests. They're not getting comment from, you know, the people that they're talking to. They, they are speaking directly to uh, an audience and giving them entertainment, and often they are sort of, uh, specifically with the case of YouTubers, a lot of them are getting, you know, products for free ahead of time so that they can review them, and they're doing cool reviews, but these reviews are, are paid for by the companies that do it. You know, there's affiliate marketing, there's all these sorts of things and ways that, uh, you know, these people are compromised, and I'm not saying journalists are perfect, they certainly aren't, and we have our own problems, but if you suddenly start uh, saying that journalism isn't valuable and I'll get I'll either get my information from an Apple blogger or an Apple YouTuber or you know electric which is a, an Elon a Tesla blog that is you know run by Tesla fans this is not journalism this is public relations and in many ways you know these people know more than journalists because they're obsessed with a single thing so they come off as being much more knowledgeable about certain things and they certainly are um, and I, I would never take that away from them like they a lot of them have a lot more technical expertise than journalists when we're talking about things like technology youtubers but they don't have they don't do any reporting. There's no reporting there whatsoever. And if you think that reporting is important, and I, I hope that you do, uh, you know, you sort of need to give journalists the benefit of the doubt because there is a lot of sort of trial and error and gray areas in reporting itself, in reading through documents, in, uh, you know, talking to people and talking to sources, talking to anonymous sources, getting information from within a company uh, and handling that in a way that protects people uh, and handling that in a way that is fair and that is, uh, you know, going to get a, a version of the truth out there that you're not going to get from a, a YouTuber who talks at his uh, webcam for an hour and a half. No, I mean, and that's what makes um, Elon Musk's statements sort of dangerous beyond um, the specifics of his particular grievances. It's the same reason that what Trump says is is dangerous beyond the specifics of his particular grievances. That, you know, when you when you undercut facts or you um, denigrate the people who are who are bringing facts and kind of set up this very strange kind of logical paradigm where, if an establishment journalist says it, then it can't be true. That makes it very difficult to communicate meaningful information that is necessary to a functioning democracy. Democracy only works if there's some sort of epistemological baseline. But if we lose that, and it and it feels sometimes like we we are 
heading towards losing that, or maybe we already have lost that, that if you no longer have the ability to say this thing is true and that people can trust when something is true, um, how are you supposed to have meaningful public discourse about anything? Then everything kind of becomes contested and, you know, like Rudy Giuliani saying the other day that facts are relative and that's why he didn't want Trump you know, testifying before um, Robert Mueller that, you know, that that statement in itself, I mean, it's kind of laughable and silly. But if we live in a world where facts are relative, we're in a lot of trouble. And so somebody like Elon Musk, who has all of this influence, you know, basically saying, you, you know, don't trust journalism. Well, we need journal. Jur- democracy needs journalism, period, to, to function. And that's why it's protected in the Constitution. So if you have these really high-profile figures, regardless of what their specific politics are or what they're arguing for or against, it makes it very difficult for people to participate meaningfully in their democracies. And then that's what opens us up to the attacks like that came from Russia. We just are in a lot. We're in a um, epistemological and uh, existential kind of crisis and these attacks against journalists feed into that in ways that that I think are very dangerous. And I don't know what to do about that. You know, it it's that's what is scary. And that's why, you know, the statements from Elon Musk the other day was like, uh, how do you even counter that? Because if you counter that, especially as someone as a member of the establishment, as a journalist, that just you're making it worse. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're making it worse. You're almost proving his case to those millions of people who put stock in the idea that if a journalist opens their mouth, it isn't true. It's it's untenable and it doesn't lead us anywhere good. Right, right. Um, so I, I would love to talk about this all day. Um, <laughs> we've, we've talked for over an hour at this point. So uh, I will let uh, both of you say any final thoughts that you have and then uh, let's wrap this up. Oh goodness, just if, if there are any, no, don't. I mean, yeah, is, no. if there's anything we didn't talk about that you think is important, either from uh, your report or just tying up any loose ends that we sort of opened and then didn't close. I just uh, one thing, which is kind of circling back to something we talked about uh, quite a bit ago. But you keep talking about Charlottesville as being a catalyst for many people, and that is very surprising to me. Um, just personally, I think that. The moment that Trump posted the sheriff's store on his Twitter, mm-hmm. do you guys remember that? Yep, um, yep. And then later on, when his Instagram posted the Pepe meme, where it's like um, it was the deplorables, and it was like them kind of lined up, and it was Trump and Pence, and one of the characters was Pepe. And in both of those instances, it was stuff that was coming directly from Reddit and 4chan. And for me, when I saw that that pipeline was fully constructed between these online communities and the Republican nominee, that is when I was personally shook. And that is when I was personally like, we, we, have, uh, we have come upon a really uh, dangerous cocktail of, 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 of people here. And, and that, that, is, that, that was my moment of like, okay, we're in for a ride right now. Right. Well, and that speaks, I mean, perfectly to the sort of, and we didn't really talk about the identity issues that the report discusses, which is, you know, if you're looking at the people who were the slowest on the uptake, um, who did not recognize that this symbolic violence was actual violence and that it, and it could very easily sort of, it was incendiary in this very embodied sense. 
that you have to look at the identity positions of those folks and that, you know, for the most part, if you're a, if you're a, a, a white middle class, probably dude, but not necessarily, but you've basically never had to deal with systemic oppression in your life. And you've always sort of been privileged to think about racism as something that, that happens, but not really to you. So you kind of have an abstract understanding of it, but not an embodied understanding of it. Then it's really easy to look at things like swastikas or, you know, any of that sort of content, um, abstractly through the lens of sort of trolling or lulls or irony or whatever, people who have embodied experiences of systemic oppression, who have experienced racialized or, or sexualized violence are just in a, it's just less likely that you're going to look at, at something, a symbol of that embodied violence and be like, no big deal. So who these reporters were, the life experiences that they had had, and the fact that newsrooms are often filled with people with similar backgrounds who similarly only have an abstract um, or clinical understanding of racism, that factors into why it took so long for the embodied political repercussions of this behavior to really present itself as being a problem that, that people needed to pay attention to. So yeah, Charlottesville was late. That was really late in the game for people to be like, oh, maybe we have a problem. But that speaks to issues of diversity and representation and experience and bodies and all of that. So it becomes a very complicated and troubling cultural picture when you start looking about the bodies involved and the experiences those bodies had and the ways that those experiences translated into a profound sort of myopia such that you could look at a swastika and kind of shrug and think it was a joke. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a good point. And I, I think we should leave it here so that uh, we, we certainly should have you on again soon because it's always good to have you. Um, the report is called The Oxygen of Amplification. It's What's the best place to find it? Data and Society's website, your Twitter, or, or like where? Um, probably the Data and Society website. Um, it's on it's on my Twitter, but um, probably them. They're they're the ones that they they hold it in their hands. Yeah, um, and they do great work. Um, not just this, but lots of other reports and events, and talking about how uh, journalists should sort of navigate the online world as well as how uh, the online world affects data and society. I think that's fair. <laughs> um, that's good. <laughs> anyways, um, I'm Jason Kebler. I have Emmanuel Myberg here and Whitney Phillips. Thank you guys so much for being on. Um, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye, Emmanuel. Goodbye. Yeah, bye. say bye to the people. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye, people. All right.